our guest today is a psychologist whose past clinical experiences include work in community mental health, hospitals, college counseling services, and forensic psychotherapy in the federal prison system. This episode is centered around a discussion of cluster B disorders, including borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. He is a brilliant, open-minded guy with strong intentions of helping people through their lives. I had a lot of fun on this one. Here is my friend, Dr. Adam Rodriguez. So what do you know about borderline personality disorder? (laughs) What do I know about borderline personality disorder? That's a pretty broad question. Yeah, I know. It, uh, it, is it better to say, do you do, have you learned much regarding cluster B personality disorders? Do you do a lot of work in that or read a, a lot about it? I do. There's a couple of different things that come to mind when you ask that question. The first is, I don't know that it's really possible to do work without encountering cluster B personality disorders at some point. That being said, for many people, they do try and avoid it. So there's a number of people who they just don't work in that area. Or if somebody, if somebody presents, okay, so there's a couple of things I guess I should say about it. Not everybody who comes into therapy, especially with cluster B personality disorders, although this is changing a little bit now, is coming in and saying, I have this personality disorder, it happens to be cluster B, can I get treatment for it? It usually doesn't work that way. Usually they're coming in for some other reason. I have some anxiety, I have some depression, my partner, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, whomever wants me to come in because they say that I'm this, that, or the other, Mm -hmm. they come in and then you sort of discover it. That's interesting to me because I've done a lot of research on it based on my past with certain uh, people in uh, relationships that I've been in. And in case people don't know what cluster B is, uh, it's either borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. And so- right. Right. Okay. And they're sort of they're grouped together under the idea that they all prominently feature kind of dramatic and erratic behavior from an individual. Yes. And that's the common link. Yes. They're I mean, you can kind of end up spreading yourself across a number of them, right? If you yeah. were considered to be in that cluster. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so my experience with it is the frustration with trying to love someone and realizing that something's not exactly right, Mm -hmm. but not being able to do anything about it. And all of this stuff I figured out was after the majority of the relationship had ended anyway. But when you're going through it with someone, and I, I have problems. Everybody has problems. Everybody's got certain things from their childhood that they're dealing with or, um, their incapability of of dealing with past frustration or whatever. Everybody's got their issue. But when you're dealing with somebody that is so extreme, it's very difficult to just exist. And you know that something's going on, but you can't quite diagnose it. And in working with therapists, I've been to a number of therapists, and reading all these books, the thing that sticks out most to me is that when you have a person with one of these ailments or, or disorders, they're incapable of accepting it, right? They, they are incapable. Often. Yeah. Often. There's an interesting shift that I think has occurred in the last 
however many years, 10, 15 years, in which some of this is embraced a little bit more. Borderline, I think, in particular. It's become much more part of the common vernacular. 15, 20 years ago, people knew about it to be sure, but mainly clinicians use this term. It wasn't common parlance. You wouldn't necessarily find self-help books the way that you do now. You wouldn't find as much literature about it as you do now. And you certainly wouldn't have people who are either self-diagnosing with it or are coming into therapy saying, I have borderline personality disorder, not nearly as much as you do now. Mm -hmm. You would have it, of course, but now it's far more common than it was. Narcissistic is a little bit different as well. Traditionally, that's a disorder that it was extremely rare. I, it's unimaginable to me that you would have any number of people coming into therapy saying, I'm in therapy because I have narcissistic personality disorder. It's contrary to the disorder itself. Exactly. That's begun to shift a little bit. Not necessarily so much that people are coming in and saying it, but they're coming in and saying things like, people say that I have. Or people are coming in and saying, my parents have narcissistic personality disorder. My last partner had narcissistic personality disorder. It's become far more common. And there's a number of different reasons for this, but I think one of the ones that I think has very clearly contributed to people using that terminology much more frequently is this sort of armchair diagnosis of the previous president. Okay. So, <laughs> so thanks, Trump. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it right there, just like that. <laughs> it is fascinating and I've had this conversation uh, with one of my good friends because she is going through a divorce and her uh, soon to be ex, she considers to be narcissistic. And the, the conversation I've had with her many times in his defense, which is weird, not, I'm not really defending him, but I'm saying, seems like you need that sometimes like yeah. Steve jobs or, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, there are mm -hmm. certain personalities that if they didn't have that disorder, they would probably not achieve what they achieved. This is one of the tricky places of diagnosis and disorders. Essentially, any disorder that you want to look at, all humans contain some element of that. Any disorder that you could find in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual Mental Disorders, the sort of, you know, the American... I don't know, major text for diagnosing. Anything that you find in there is just common to human experience. But there's a line, right, between healthy versus pathological. Narcissism is a really difficult one to discern that line. It's historically been so because everybody has to have some healthy narcissism. Mm -hmm. It's part of what allows us to feel good about ourselves, to feel confident about ourselves, and to not be completely eviscerated and destroyed when we suffer some sort of a setback. So if something negative happens in our life, if we put ourselves out on a limb for a job, for a test, in a relationship, and then something doesn't work in our favor, you have to have some degree of healthy narcissism, otherwise you'll fall apart at it. But that demarcation of where does it cease to become healthy and when is it all of a sudden pathological is a very, very difficult line to discern. Well, and also maybe, maybe... And I sound like a proponent for a narcissist, but <laughs> maybe it's only bad if you're trying to have a relationship with someone. Maybe if you're trying to run a company, it's a positive trait. Depending upon how we success positivity, right? Mm -hmm. So is it a positive trait to... Now we start to get into differentiation. Let me use psychopathy as a sort of an example. Psychopathy and narcissism are not the same thing. Psychopathy contains narcissism. Not all narcissism is psychopathy, right? All beagles are dogs, not all dogs are beagles, okay. kind of a thing. So 
you can have somebody who's psychopathic who's very, very successful in um, business. They tend to be CEOs very, very frequently. We think of them as serial killers and that sort of a thing. And there certainly is a contingent of psychopaths who are serial killers. But there's plenty of psychopaths out there in nature who are CEOs and very successful business people. They're successful by a standard of business. They run a business, they make a lot of money, they generate a lot of uh, money for for the company. Are they successful in their interpersonal relationships? Do they treat the employees well? Is it an ethical company? Those are different questions. Mm-hmm. For sure. And so do you have more experience with any of these types of personalities more than the other? Or you said a minute ago, you uh, typically see people who um, just come for like a broad issue, like depression or something, and then Somewhere down the line, you figure out that this may be one of the causes. Yeah. 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 Cluster B is fairly common, to be sure. Um, Borderline and narcissism are particularly tricky. The first thing to know about it is there's not a tremendous amount of reliability in these diagnoses, meaning that it's not uncommon for individuals who are diagnosed with one of these cluster B personality disorders to be seen by somebody else down the line and be diagnosed with something else. Uh-huh. Usually a cluster B, but not always. Yeah, that's got to be so challenging because you, you're just a human and mm-hmm. there are any number of therapists in the world who are just humans, and you could have a different idea of what the issue is with a given person, right? There's no, there's no like yeah. checklist. I mean, there is a checklist, but not really. You can't fully say it's what an issue is with someone all the time, right? Right. So the DSM has its criteria. So let's say something like borderline personality disorder. You have to meet, I think it's there's nine criteria. You have to meet, let's say, five of them. I can't remember exactly what the numbers are, but that's essentially how it works, right? But those are just a set of behaviors. They're open to some degree of interpretation, and people are going to look at them differently. They're also subject to bias. We know, based upon numbers, that more men tend to be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder than women. And we know, based upon numbers, that more women tend to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder than men. There's tremendous overlap between those two personality disorders, though. There's tremendous overlap between the symptomatology. So one individual may see somebody exhibit a particular set of symptoms and say, oh, it's this. And another person may see those same people exhibiting a different set of symptoms and say it's that. Further complicating it is the fact that all the diagnoses in the DSM are polythetic, meaning that depression for person A looks different than depression for person B, looks different than depression for person C. Mm-hmm. There's an individual expression for each person because it's personality-based. And so how a particular symptom, disorder, or pathology manifests in this person versus that person is going to look different. When you overlap on top of that, all sorts of implicit bias, social structures, It complicates it tremendously to where people are going to get really muddy in their definitions. So personality disorders tend to be extremely problematic in terms of reliability. You're going to see a lot of overlap and you're going to see a lot of inconsistency. Mm -hmm. And what's further, sorry. No, 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 keep on. So if you take borderline personality, if you want to get into like the details of what it is and how it works, we can do that. But in some states, a person in a borderline state can exhibit a particular set of behaviors like... um, Uh, really irrational judgment, high impulsivity, emotional dysregulation. And those things can look strikingly like a manic episode, meaning that that person gets a diagnosis of bipolar 1, which is very trendy right now, instead of borderline, because they look very, very similar. But when you take a very brief snapshot as what usually happens with these disorders because a person gets diagnosed with them when they do inpatient, 
So they go hospital, they're hospitalized. They're seen by psychiatrists or psychiatric nurse practitioners, somebody diagnosed, and they're seen very, very briefly. You get just the tiniest snapshot and you get to see just a little bit. You don't really get to go into depth. So you see this set of symptoms and you haven't really uncovered much below it. You've just seen the top of it. And the top of it, well, a manic episode looks very much like um, acute agitation within borderline, which can look a lot like narcissism, which can look a lot like an anxiety disorder as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's kind of hard to differentiate, right? It's, it's just, extremely hard. You, you don't typically just fit one mold. You're kind of yeah. dabbling in all of them, right? And it really takes time. It really takes time in getting to know somebody to understand what's actually happening so that you're not just going off of this really, really brief snapshot that you get. Mm -hmm. And you really have to see somebody over time, especially with personality disorders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to quote this book, and this book is called It's All Your Fault by Bill Eddy. <laughs> you ever read this? No. No? Okay. Well, not like this is the definitive uh, truth for any of these. I've read a number of these books, but this kind of sums it up pretty well. Uh, it says, borderlines are driven by an unconscious fear of abandonment, but their behavior is so emotionally intense that people repeatedly abandon them. Because of their lack of self-awareness and lack of adaptation, they repeat the pattern of emotionally intense behavior and are repeatedly abandoned. Yeah. So it's this very frustrating cycle uh, where you are in a very intense position, which I unfortunately am drawn to. Yeah. And so I feed off of it. Mm -hmm. And it's this give and take. I've had to explain to me multiple times by a number of people where you're kind of chasing each other. And mm -hmm. as soon as somebody starts to, to chase you back as they're running away, you, you give up. You're like, well, I'm chasing you. So then you start to pull back and run away and mm -hmm. they start chasing you. Mm -hmm. And so it's this messy thing that I don't know. I'm not in that relationship anymore. I don't know if we ever could have figured it out, but uh, it was this constant anxiety that I never knew what exactly. From you. Yeah, like I never yeah. knew what was going to happen. Um, there was a lot of uh, the inability to do anything that didn't involve her. Like even just like yes. going to get drinks with my friends or something. Yes. The, the fear of abandonment. Yes. And she would make it so miserable. Not She wouldn't tell me no, but mm -hmm. she would make it so shitty that if I did go and do whatever the thing was, as soon as I came back home, I would be punished for it. Mm -hmm. And so it got me to the point where I didn't want to do it anymore because I didn't want to deal with the punishment. Yeah. So now we start to get to really what's underlying these things as far as we best understand. There's one thing that I would add to the definition that, that you read. I think that people with a borderline level of organization, and, and I'm going to phrase it that way rather than say borderline disorder, and I can get into what the difference is, but people with a borderline level of organization, psychic organization, I think it's that there's a fear of abandonment. But these individuals, I think, are often in a different sort of a relational bind. That on one hand, there is this fear that they're going to be rejected, they're going to be abandoned, and they're going to be left alone. And that's important. But on the other end, when they're in a relationship with somebody and they're close to somebody, I think that there's a competing fear of engulfment, of being taken over and consumed by that person. So that individual is always in a bind because they're never going to be in a good state. If Pardon me. If they're with somebody, then there's going to be a fear that they're taken over, that they lose themselves. Mm -hmm. 
And that's one of the reasons I think, or at least I would speculate, as to why they wouldn't say no when you want to go out and have your friends. Mm -hmm. Because to some degree, that I think would be too close, rather than it's better to insinuate or to make it a little bit more subtle. But on the other end, there's that total, there's that complete fear of total rejection and abandonment. So one way or the other, they're stuck in a bind in a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And it just becomes a very difficult thing. Uh, the, the constant attempt to, to please someone uh, that can't be pleased. That's right. Because you're in a bind. And they present that bind. They feel it. They experience it themselves. Not all of that is something that they're consciously aware of either. Mm -hmm. So that gets into a little bit of how we think about what's underlying this state. And for many people, the way that we think about it is that predominantly there is this really diffuse sense of identity. And what I mean by that is they don't really have a sense of who they are. It's not really well integrated. It's not very solid. For a lot of other people, you can ask, who are you? And they could probably give some sort of a response that has some depth to it. People in a more borderline level, they tend to be much more superficial and vague. And not only about themselves, but around people in their lives as well. Tell me about your mother. Tell me about your father. They offer these very superficial sort of understandings. And that's true of themselves as well. There's this sense that who they are is not very well integrated. It's not this sense. That, there's a sense that they are there that they exist as a person, but they don't really have this solid sense of who they are. Mm -hmm. So it's not very well integrated, which means that they're heavily dependent upon other people to help regulate that. Mm -hmm. But the closer that I get to you, then you take over. And if I don't have a huge sense of who I am on my own, if I get too close to you, then I'm worried that you're just going to take over and I'm going to mm -hmm. lose myself all to you. And that's terribly frightening. But at the same time, if you go too far, then I vanish. And that's very much like that push-pull that I think you described. Mm -hmm. For sure. And when you have a person experiencing this who not even necessarily is unwilling, but like they're just, they don't understand it themselves. How yeah. do you, how do you, how do you get a person to figure out that something's wrong with themselves to do that self-reflecting and yeah. actually come and talk to someone? It's a huge problem. Yeah. As I said before, many times when individuals with these types of presenting problems, cluster B personality disorders, many times when they come to therapy, it's usually for something that isn't the cluster B personality disorder. It may be complicating that thing. It may even be fueling that thing, the primary factor that's fueling that thing. But they might be experiencing, let's say, some you know bad relationships at work that are making them really uncomfortable. Oh, I hate my boss. This total asshole just does all this stuff and I can't stand them and it's so stressing me out and I need to come talk to somebody about it. Or they might be experiencing some sense of depression or sadness that's affiliated or associated with it. Or they might come at the urging of a partner. It's a really, really frequent reason that they come. I'm just here because, you know, my girlfriend won't, you know, shut up about me coming to therapy or my boyfriend won't stop telling me I need to be in therapy. So I'm just, I just need to get them off my back and I'm mm -hmm. going to come here. And you start talking with them and then you start to experience these things. Mm -hmm. So for most people, it's what we call ego dystonic. It's not something that they can recognize. A lot of people with something like depression or anxiety, that's ego syntonic. They could say, oh yeah. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. These things worry me. These things make me sad. These things make me feel bad about myself. People with these types of personality disorders, they tend to feel like they're doing okay for the most part. And if there's a problem, it's the other person. It's not them. Well, that's that's what this book is all about. It's about yeah. the individual with the problem blaming everyone else because they're incapable of accepting 
any blame because it just there's too much guilt and shame in saying I did something wrong. So yeah. it's always someone else's fault. Yeah. And especially in a, in a borderline sort of a level, right? So these individuals, they have to have that feeling of closeness, but people for them, they can offer that. And when they do, they're very strongly idealized. So these people are wonderful, but that, that switch flips yes. very, very quickly. Sometimes therapists will sort of joke if if you get a if you get a patient in therapy very early on and they're really doting on you, you're the best therapist I've ever had. The last therapist I had was no good, but you seem to get me in a way. That's that's when the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you say, "Oh yeah, the other shoe is going to drop pretty mm -hmm. soon." If I'm being idealized in this way, and I'm not ideal, I'm a human just like anybody else. So if a patient comes in and they're idealizing me, then I know that they have a very superficial understanding of who I am. I'm not ideal. But I also know there's a very good chance the other shoe is going to drop pretty soon and I'm going to be worthless and horrible and garbage. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because that's referred to as splitting, right? Yeah. Yeah, where everyone is either the best mm -hmm. Jesus-like person in the world or the most terrible, awful piece of crap ever. And it can oscillate within the same person as well. Yes. So it's not necessarily that person A is ideal and person B is devalued and they're horrible and bad all the time. It's that any individual can be both, but they're never simultaneously both. That's too integrated. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's very black and white. It's, they're incapable of seeing you as a good person who has a flaw That's in right. cleaning the bathroom or something. You That's know? right. It's like, you didn't clean the bathroom. You were the worst person that has ever existed. But then you That's bring right. home flowers or something, and oh my God, he's the best thing that has ever been alive. Yeah, and it's part of the work with some of these individuals. So one example that's given sometimes is you can have a patient in a borderline level who comes in and they're talking about, let's say, a new friend that they made. And that friend is being idealized. Oh, this person is the best. I love them because. And they start listing off all these reasons. As they're listing those reasons, and I'm hearing this, I'm hearing them idealize somebody just as an example, my intervention might be after a pause to say, yes, but you also want to kill them. Because they don't have a very good job of integrating those two sides of themselves. They don't have a very good, they don't have the capacity or the ability to understand, oh wait, this is a whole person. Yeah. So this thing that I'm feeling about them, idealizing them, it may be in response to this other side of them as well, which is that I envy this side of them and I wish that I had that for myself. So the yeah. proximity to them is really, really good, but I can't see that other side. And as a therapist, when you help them, when you sort of bring this to their attention, yes, but you also want to kill them. In a way, you're helping them to sort of begin to integrate and say, okay, people are not black and white. People are gray. Yeah. And the difficult thing for the person in that person's life is that when it's because it's so extreme, when things are good, they are very, very good. Yes. But then when they're bad, it's, it's, unmanageable and yeah. it, it will ruin your day. It'll ruin your life. And so yeah. typically what happens is when it's in the bad, you're constantly trying to get in the good again. And then there's this yeah. weird power struggle because that other person has all the power and you feel like a little bitch because you're just, you're doing all these things that compromise yourself as a person to just get in that good spot again. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you'll find yourself being pulled toward it. And you'll find that they can engage with you in some ways that'll pull you back toward that. So I, I go back to this idea that I talked before about this sense of um, non-integrated or diffuse identity, right? So we, we, we think 
in a borderline uh, personality, we think of, of four main dimensions of experience here. One of them is about identity. You can call it ego, that sense of self. This is who I am. Not ego in the sort of grandiosity way, but ego in the sense of this is who I am. This is the me. So if you were to ask me about myself, I would say this, that, or the other. These individuals have a that relatively diffuse ego. So some of the things that go with that are there's very little ability to tolerate anxiety. And so just like these examples that you're saying, when these anxious moments come up, that's too overwhelming. There's just not enough solid within themselves to do it. Additionally, there can be um, a real difficult time in regulating emotional experience. So when emotions come up, they feel like they're flooding, they feel like they're overwhelming. And when they get expressed, they get expressed in these really powerful, exaggerated ways. This goes in line with some of the behaviors that you can see with some of these individuals, which includes the self-mutilating or self-harming behavior, like mm -hmm. cutting or other gestures. There, They can be this attempt to help regulate. Cutting is often an attempt to help regulate. Something just feels too overwhelming, too distressing, and psychically, I can't handle it. One way that I can try and do that is through self-harm. It can help sort of center a person, believe it or not. I mean, it's still pathological. It has its problems, to be sure. But the idea behind what the person is doing often, not always, is about helping to regulate something that can't otherwise be regulated. So you see this aspect of ego weakness or, or, or diffuse identity, as we call it. Then you see what um, you were referring to before, like with splitting. So the defensive operations that they operate in are often this idea of splitting. When I talk about defensive operations, what I'm essentially referring to is we all have this set of, you hear defense mechanisms tossed around from time to time. We all have this um, these different patterns of dealing with things that feel like threats to our psyche, threats to our psychic integrity. We all have this sense of who we are. And when things from the outside world feel like they're going to threaten it in some way, we usually put up defensive maneuvers, defensive mechanisms. And for individuals with borderline, there's often going to be that splitting. This is a very um, kind of a basic rudimentary way of seeing the world. If you think of these along a developmental arch, splitting is often something that we associate with earliest processes. So when the infant is born, everything is simply what it is. It's black or white. These things are very, very concrete. Over time, we learn to integrate them. We learn to make things a little bit more whole. You still see plenty of splitting in life in the natural world. It's all over the place. There was one study which I found really, really fascinating. It was at a cafe. People had a tip jar. You can leave a tip. What they found was more tips were left when they would put up some sort of a splitting binary option. What I mean by that is, are you a dog person or a cat person? So they would put two jars, dog people, cat people. And then you can put your money in one or the other. Excuse me. This is a version of splitting. There's no reason you can't like dogs and cats. <laughs> There's no reason people can't like both, right? Do you yeah. like the British or the U.S. office? Do you like French or, or American Chardonnay? Yeah. There's no reason you can't like both. Yeah. But we try and create these splits because it's just a fundamental way of understanding the world. Sports are like this, right? And politics. Politics are like this. Mm -hmm. This side is all, all good and perfect. That side is all bad, Right. And so you see this happen in a lot of different ways. People who depend upon that, if sports is one outlet for you to be able to split sometimes, nothing wrong with that. It could be a fun, healthy outlet. If it becomes pathological or problematic in some way, okay, that's a different thing. And somebody in a borderline state, that's usually going to be pathological. So they use these defensive uh, maneuvers that tend to be more primary. By primary, I mean developmentally younger along the scale. Projection is another one. So if I have something that I'm feeling, 
and it feels intolerable or it feels impermissible or it feels bad or overwhelming or something. It's just too much for me to take. You feel it now. And I don't necessarily mean that you magically feel it. What I mean is I'm going to ascribe it to you. You're the person who feels that way. You're the person who does this. You're the person who does that. Oftentimes, though, it really is blind, something that's within me, when it's, when it's projection at least. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of sounds like gaslighting, right? Where you feel something, but you make that other person feel that so that you can say that it's them experiencing it. That's what gaslighting is, right? I want to differentiate three things here. Um, so gaslighting is more properly inducing psychosis in another person. What I mean by that is, it's a way of making another person crazy. That's the sort of the the lay person way to say that. But the idea is you're inducing psychosis. Comes from the film, right? I think it was a 50s film, maybe 60s. The idea being that I'm gonna do something or I'm going to behave in such a way to make you feel like I'm crazy or like you're crazy, yes. right? So I tell you, um, I don't know what, let's let's say, you say, hey, you want to come over here, you know, at four o'clock on a, on a Saturday and, 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 and do this you know, podcast. And I say, yeah, great, let's do that. I'll be there at four o'clock. And then I don't show up and you're like, where are you? And you said, well, it was Sunday. I, I can tell you, I mean, not the best example in the world. But, but then I firmly say, no, it was Sunday. You're like, no, it was Saturday. It was absolutely Saturday. I remember it was Sunday. You're misremembering this. It's a weird kind of basic example. But the idea being that I behave in a way that makes you start to question yourself and doubt yourself and feel like, wait a second, I don't know what I remember. Maybe I didn't really remember that. Maybe I didn't do this. Maybe I didn't do that. I am trying to get you to doubt yourself and not believe yourself. That's gaslighting. Because you're attempting to cover a lie. Maybe. That's one reason. But why are you attempting to cover a lie would be the question that I'm more curious about. What this usually has to do with is power and power dynamics. I'm attempting in some way to maneuver with you to gain control. Whatever I'm going to do with that control, I can't say. But I am trying to control you in some sense. And a great way to do that is to make you feel crazy. Yeah. It makes you more dependent upon me because I'm the person now who's not crazy. I know things. You don't. Mm-hmm. You're crazy. You can't depend upon yourself. You can't rely upon yourself. But wait, I seem to know what I'm talking about. I seem to know what's going on. You could depend upon me. Mm-hmm. So now you're really dependent upon me. And I've maneuvered with you in a way relationally to get you to doubt yourself and value me. Mm-hmm. That's ultimately the goal of gaslighting. Wow. And that's something, I don't even know, people are capable of understanding that they're doing it on purpose, right? It's just like a thing. Yeah? Yeah, I think, so we have two different ways of thinking about this. I think a lot of gaslighting really is not fully conscious. When it is, you're talking about something which is a little bit more psychopathic, which is something that gets into something more disturbing, criminogenic, antisocial. A lot of times what we really see, and and you'll see examples of that, and it definitely makes the media because it's titillating and it's fun and exciting. But a lot of it is much more mundane than that. And it happens within the context of relationships. That tends to be not fully conscious. It tends to come from the place of a person who's far less secure. So I'm really secure in myself. That's a very important word. That's the other thing I wanted to bring up, a a number of things. But... um... The act of appearing very uh, secure and uh, uh, proud of yourself, but there's a deep insecurity underneath it all. And it's like a, it's like a switch 
you know? Yeah. It's like you're incapable of dealing with the insecurity, so you try to look like you're awesome at everything. That's right. It's yeah. compensatory. So I feel so bad. I feel so insecure, right? That's a feeling that is pretty conscious, but there's lots of elements to it that aren't fully conscious. But I feel horrible. I feel really insecure. Now, what can manifest next is a lot of different things. That can look like depression. I'm insecure. I'm worthless. I'm horrible. Very egocentric, right? Meaning, again, that, that I'm aware of it. I'm aware of my insecurity. But I don't necessarily have control over it. And that can lead to something like depression. That can lead to anxiety as well. Very, very related. But it can also lead to a lot of other things as well, which include swinging the fence the other way or swinging, swinging the other direction, right? Saying, now we start to get into narcissism. I'm wonderful. I'm amazing. I'm the best thing ever. I'm great. I'm the best at this. I'm the best at that. Are you? If somebody comes toward me and they're really boastful, they're really bragful in that way, it's pretty clear to me usually, I can get that sense of that insecurity pretty early on. Why are you compensating for this? Why, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Some of it's developmentally appropriate, right? You'll see kids do this. If you see, if you think about like primary school age kids, elementary age school kids, right? And they play that one-upsmanship, that's born out of insecurity. Mm -hmm. They're young kids. They shouldn't be secure yet. They're figuring out who they are. They're trying to develop the sense of self. Well, I went to, you know, Disneyland and I, I rode this ride five times. I did it six times and it wasn't even scary at all, right? It probably was scary. You're yeah. a kid. But it's compensatory. It, it's, it's a way of covering that insecurity, which doesn't feel good. Insecurity is threatening. If I don't feel secure within myself, I don't feel safe. Things are threatening to me. I could be attacked. I could be destroyed. I could be eviscerated or annihilated. So it's understandable. That's, what, that's something that can happen with children, Right eventually you grow and you develop and you become more secure within yourself. So you don't need to do that, but not everybody does. No. And sometimes that can manifest in things like narcissism mm -hmm. or I should differentiate pathological narcissism. Mm -hmm. And the majority of people, it seems that I, I don't know what the model is. I don't know how you tell anyone this is the right path to choose. This is the way to be proud of yourself, but not too proud. This is how to not be a psycho. This is how to have a great childhood. This is how to appreciate your spouse. Like it's very challenging when there's so many different people and uh, there's social media and yes. um, all these things happening in the world right now. Yeah, It's so difficult to really tell someone what they should do to be the right person. Yes. I was thinking, I paused because I was thinking of your phrase, it's difficult to tell somebody what to do to be a good person. And what I thought about was, I think it's much more ontological than that. I think it's much more experiential, right? We can't tell somebody how to be a good person. We sort of have to have experiences with them that help them grow into being a good person. And so what we're talking about then is a way of being able to assist people in their development in a way that promotes it and encourages it without in some way either neglecting it or suffocating it. And those are usually the situations when problems arise. I mean, there's others like trauma and whatnot, but. Yeah, well, I mean, the most basic example I can think of is, I told you I had three kids and uh, my goal is to live a happy, healthy life, but it's also to figure out how to inspire them to be healthy, successful people. Mm -hmm. Constantly 
second guessing everything mm -hmm. I do. Yeah. You know, I don't want any of them to have a negative experience in life and somehow be like, oh, well, you you grounded me when I was seven or you told me I couldn't watch TV or whatever. Like there's any number of things that can happen that you are unaware could have an effect later on in life. Yeah. And because everything's changing so quickly and yeah. none of us really know what the right answer is on so many different things, it's yeah. so challenging to try to figure out what the right thing is all the time. Because how old are you? I am 46. 46. I'm 38. I have learned so much in the last five years. Yeah. I have learned a ridiculous amount in the last 10, and I'm a completely different human being from yeah. who I was 20 years ago in high school. Oh, yeah. And I don't know that, I don't know that there's any way you can really teach that to anyone. No. I think bad things have to happen to you. Yeah. And you have to figure them out. Them out. You have to try things. You have to get your heart broken. You have to break your leg and crash a car. Like there's all these things you have to do that you can't really prepare your kids for. Mm -mm. So it's, I don't know what I'm trying to ask you. But. Well, I th now we're getting into development, right? We're getting into childhood development, which is a whole other can of worms. No, you don't know what to do. You really don't. None of us do. Nobody does. And, and, and that in and of itself is one thing that I think needs to be addressed a little bit better, which is not knowing and being able to tolerate not knowing. We're not a culture that does that very well. We really promote this idea of knowing and obj objective reality and truth. And, and we really, really push it in a very strong way. And I think to some extent, one of the things that it can do that's damaging is it can limit an individual's capacity to not know. It's, tricky because it is impossible to know everything. Your children may want you to on some level, but you can't, you never can. And I think that we do better to impart a message to our children that we can tolerate not knowing than it is to try and know when you can't or you shouldn't or you don't. That just feels foolhardy and it feels like it sets them up to feel some pressure to have to know all the time or to have some answer all the time. We can't, uh, uh, from a childhood development standpoint, I, I, I don't think that there's any reasonable way. And, and there are just, you know, volumes and volumes of literature on raising children and parenting and child development, right? At the end of the day, it's really tricky because so much of it comes down to not so much do you, you know, potty train them at this age or do you potty train them at that age? Do you, you know, put them in this type of school or that type of school? It comes really down to how you relate and connect with them on a one-to-one -one basis. First of all, every child's different. You have three children, right? You've known since day one that these three children have different temperaments. For sure. So there's nature and there's nurture, and they interact with one another dialectically, but it's never one or the other. People come out of the womb and they have their own temperament, they have their own personality. Absolutely they do. And any parent with more than one child can tell you that, hands down, even twins. However, that gets shaped by nurture, of course, as development goes on. But at the end of the day, really what people, I think, internalize, we're, we're social creatures, and I think we forget this. Humans are pack animals. We, we exist in connection with other people. And when we're isolated from people, we become psychotic. It's not the only way to become psychotic, but we do. We have to be connected with other people. And childhood development is about connection to other people. And so from that perspective, how you relate to individuals feels much more important than do you send them to this school? Do you potty train them at that age? Do you give them you know, their letters and their numbers and their colors to learn at the age of two, five, or 10? 
those things have some value to be sure. And there's plenty of very accomplished and erudite people have written on the best ways to do that sort of thing. But from a psychological perspective, if you can create a relationship with them in which they feel safe, they feel understood, and they feel that they have a sense of their self as being good in the world, I think that that goes much further than anything else that we can do. Okay. So that would be a, a starting point to avoid any of these disorders later on. Yes, to be sure. We don't know. Ideologically, people have been interested in this idea of what causes disorders for a very long time, of course. One of the models I think that's probably the most prudent, and you'll hear it from time to time, is the biopsychosocial model. The idea that we're influenced by biology, by psychology, by sociology. We're, we're, we're influenced by, and this is the nature-nurture argument again, from the outside in or the inside out. We're influenced by what our biology is. What is our temperament? What genetic structure do we have? But also other biological factors. Do we have brain injury during our life? Uh, do we have illness or disease? And how does that impact us? We're influenced sociologically. Where do we grow up? What are the environments like? What do they permit for us? What sort of sense of safety or deprivation do they provide? And then, of course, psychologically. What does our development look like? We know pretty well that certain things are very likely to be found in borderline personality disorders. We know that there's a preponderance of um, sexual abuse in, in, in people who have borderline personality. Meaning this traumatic sexual event happens and there's an inability to, to reconcile it or deal with it. So it, you have to become something else. Essentially. It's a pretty decent way to explain it. Yeah. First, I should say that sexual abuse is neither necessary nor sufficient for borderline personality disorder, right? You can have borderline personality disorder without a history of it. And sexual abuse in and of itself does not all the time lead to borderline personality. And the sexual abuse that I'm talking about is usually going to be incestuous. That's uh, the most common. It's also, I, in general, when children are sexually abused, it's usually incestuous. Mm -hmm. When it's not, the majority of that tends to be people very close to the child. You know, we have that sort of the the mythical boogeyman of the windowless van and the guy offering candy. I mean, that happens very, very rarely. It happens. It's horrific. It's atrocious. But it's very, very rare. Usually when children are abused, it's by a close family member or somebody mm -hmm. close to them, coach, a clergyman, a teacher, et cetera. But sexual abuse, yes. And for many individuals, what we find is that, I really like the way that you described it, because I think that's exactly what it is. They have a very difficult time mentalizing the experience, meaning they have a very difficult time being able to think about the experience. So it gets sort of passed off, pushed off to the side. When you combine that with some degree of significant neglect in their upbringing, then you have two factors which are very, very commonly found in people with a borderline personality. So they have a difficult time conceptualizing, thinking about, understanding the experience. No child can really understand this. So I'm not talking about them being able to fully conceptualize what happened to them, but being able to at least think about it and, and, and conjure it up. And you combine this with this aspect of neglect to where they're not really being attended to in a specific way. They may materially have what they need growing up. They might have food on the table, clothes on their back, and a roof over their home. But they don't necessarily have somebody attuned emotionally to what's going on. So you picture a young person without the development and cognitive capacity to be able to conceptualize what's happening. 
And it's sexual abuse, which in and of itself is horrific. But when you compound it with it being a family member, that's profoundly troubling. Yeah. And then they don't have an outlet to be able to sort of understand and conceptualize these experiences, think about them, consider who they are. It can absolutely contribute to this sort of what I've been referring to as this non-integrated sense of who they are, this sort of emptiness or vagueness to who they are. It's one coping method. You can also see how it really very early on establishes some idea of some distorted relationships in their life, both through the abuse as well as the neglect. And that's very, very common. We see a different profile with narcissism usually. With those individuals, ideologically, from a psychological perspective, what we so often see, rather, is not so much that there's been abuse or that there's been neglect. If anything, there's been a sort of an engulfment. You know, the cliche of the soccer dad is on the sidelines cheering their child on. It's really the, the father who's living vicariously through the son, and the son is kind of ambivalent about being at soccer, but the dad's a little bit too gung-ho for somebody. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the stereotype or cliche, the idea that a parent or a very close caregiver is in some way taking over the child's personality or sense of self, that they're kind of putting theirs onto the other person, enveloping them, so that they don't really have too much of an ability to develop it on themselves. They're taking it on for somebody else. Children do this because they have to. They don't really have a choice. Parents are super people to children. I think we forget this. Children are wholly dependent upon their parents for survival. And on some level, they know this. And so when you're faced with something catastrophic from your parents, it's not that often that children say, well, you know, my daddy's kind of an insecure jerk who just didn't get enough attention when he was a child. And so he's compensating by putting all of this onto me. But really, I'm a good person. Seven-year-olds don't do that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 40-year-olds don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> if they've been, you know, years of therapy, maybe they do. Yeah. But seven-year-olds don't do that and they can't do that. They're just not capable of it. To them, mom and dad are super people. They're omnipotent. I rely upon them for everything. They understand the world in a way that I don't. They're right, which means I must be not understanding something. I must be wrong. I must not be good enough. Hmm. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, you break it down really well, though. Do you think this is something, I mean, you can't pin it to any one of these or, or any any specific issue, but do you think this is becoming more prevalent in society or do you think we're just better at understanding it and it's been going on forever? A little bit of both. Yeah. There's a number of authors who have written about a, 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 an increase in narcissism. We see it in a couple of different ways. Uh, there was is, there is one... I can't remember the statistic exactly, but I think since 1975, on average, you see about 10 books on narcissism published every year. Previous to 1975, there were about three books total in circulation on the topic. U.S. society and a lot of Western society is very narcissistically indulgent. Neoliberalism is narcissistically indulgent. We really cater to the idea that we're all amazing, awesome people who need to be celebrated as individuals who are the best people on the planet ever. And a lot of that's embedded in neoliberalism. A lot of it's embedded in Western society. A lot of it's embedded in U.S. society. There's this other factor of social media as well, the way that we all have this personal stage now to where instead of 
you know, I said, I'm 46. So when I went to high school, if I wanted to get noticed by other people, then, you know, maybe I'd join a band or I'd join theater or play sports or something like that. And I would have, depending upon the size of my high school, anywhere from 20 to 500 people celebrating me. Mm -hmm. Now there are people getting millions of likes on social media. Mm -hmm. I don't think we yet understand what that does to a person's psyche. I think it's just too new. Yeah. To understand what it means to film a, a 59 second clip for TikTok in the privacy of our bedroom and have 2 million people view it. It's bizarre. Yeah. And you see this and it's, it's, it's striking to me. I've noticed on, um, I work with a lot of college students. Um, so in that way, I think I'm more connected to social media than I might otherwise have been um, of my own interest. But I think there's a lot about social media that's really, really wonderful. But one thing that I that I notice about it is how often people on social media love to say, I'm so introverted. I'm such an introvert. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you're so introverted that you decided to make a 59 second video, which you were going to broadcast to the world. Are they introverted? Maybe. Maybe something else is going on here. Maybe it's a way of sort of, you know, eating it, but having your cake that you can be introverted in a way hiding behind the screen, but you can still have a connect. I don't think that we yet really understand what that means to a generation of millennials and, and, and Gen Z's to grow up with this different sort of a platform and what that means to narcissistic reinforcement. Because it can absolutely be healthy. To be sure, it can be healthy. It can be a way for people who otherwise wouldn't have seen acceptance to be accepted, wouldn't have found their network to find it, wouldn't have been understood to feel that way. But of course, it can also be pathological. Well, yeah, and it also has the downside of chasing the dragon. You know, you, you do one cool thing that everybody likes, yeah. and then you're looking for that high again. Yeah. You know, I was just having this conversation with my kids last night. I can't remember who we were talking about. Oh, it was Elvis, because we watched that Elvis movie. Uh -huh. And I was explaining it to them. I was like, you cannot get higher than that. I mean, Michael mm -hmm. Jackson, you know, there, there's a number of celebrities, but Elvis was the peak. Yeah. Every, every guy wanted to be him. All the women wanted to kiss him. Like, mm -hmm. he was it. So he reached that pinnacle, and then mm -hmm. all it could do was go down. That's yeah. not good for anyone. No. Nah. It's a really striking thing. And 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 I've thought about this with, with a lot of different people. I think about it with LeBron James. I, I have no way of understanding how LeBron James is a pretty solid, stable, well-rounded guy with stable relationships in his life. He's philanthropic and seems to be a pretty centered, down-to-earth person. Yet from the age of like, I don't know, maybe 13, this person was told that he was a king. He seems to have something about him, probably in terms of his temperament, probably in terms of the people who helped to raise him, that allowed him to grow up to be a solid person. Then you look at somebody like Michael Jackson, right? Same situation as Elvis. He'd come on stage and people would literally pass out from excitement. Yeah. That is stunning to me. And they're globally known. They're celebrated on this huge stage. Michael Jackson didn't have that stability or support. Michael Jackson endured a lot of abuse. Mm -hmm. Michael Jackson endured a lot of problems. And he had some stability and connection in his life with some of his family, but in a lot of others, he didn't. And you see the way that who we grew up to be didn't necessarily fit in with everybody else. And in some ways we mocked that, but we also created it. We did. But he, that there's also the argument for that, that you have to be some sort of crazy to do, I mean, look at Kanye. Like, Dude is not sane, but it's he's- It's a pretty good example of narcissism. Yeah, and he is considered one of the greatest musicians ever. 
That's he, the slippery slope of narcissism. Yeah. And so it, oh man, it's, it's this weird thing where That's you right. have to have an elevated sense of self to get somewhere. But then once you get mm -hmm. there, you, how can that guy trust anybody? They're Absolutely. all just telling him he's the greatest thing ever. Like he, yeah. it, being in his brain, if you could sell that as an experience, I would buy hours of it because it's got to be so crazy. And people want to look at him and you can be critical of a lot of things that Kanye West has done in his life. But if you look at him and say, oh, this guy's so conceited. He's such a narcissist. Okay, maybe he is. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what I would be like if I had tens and hundreds and maybe even millions of people telling me that I was the greatest person ever. I mean, you know, you know, I, I, I teach, I, I, I work in a, in a practice and, and every now and then in my practice, somebody will be, you know, very complimenting of me or, or, you know, a student will write a nice evaluation or send me a card. That's really fulfilling. I mean, it really feels good to get that. It's a wonderful thing. I get like maybe five of those every couple of years. If I had millions of them. Oh yeah. I, it's astounding to me. The fact that anybody could be functioning within that sort of a system is 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 remarkable. Well, and continue to maintain whatever they're doing too. Like uh, you think about Jordan, like Michael Jordan, he's gotta yeah. be like one of the worst people to hang out with, <laughs> but he's the best, the best. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it makes me think of, I just recently went to Europe and I went to Vienna and one of the things that I thought would be cool is to go to Mozart's house. Uh -huh. And they have this, it's actually pretty shitty little museum. <laughs> no offense, Mozart house, but um, it was not great. Uh, but when you're inside there and you're walking around and they've got the, the little uh, piece that you hold on to so you can listen to all the different um, mm -hmm. things that they're talking about. He sounded like the ultimate douche. He's talking about how great, all these letters that he's writing to his yeah. wife and to his dad. And he's like, yeah. I went to such and such a ball this evening and uh, Lord Valderor thinks I'm the greatest thing ever. He's just so deeply engulfed in himself because from five years old, he was a, ch he was a child prodigy. He yeah. The amount of output that that guy did, I think he died at 34. So in uh, 29 years, the amount of output that that guy had yeah. was ridiculous, but yeah. it went to his head. And every single time he wrote yeah. anyone, all he could talk about was how awesome he was and all the stuff that he was doing. Yeah. And there's no one formula. So picture somebody else who doesn't have that reinforcement and they feel much more insecure and they're trying to produce something. They're trying to create something. Let's say it's music like Mozart was doing, right? Somebody is really, really insecure. doesn't feel good about themselves. They may put so much pressure on themselves that it's paralyzing. You can't write. You're so frozen with fear that you'll write a wrong note that you can't write any note whatsoever. But you can have another person that feels profound insecurity and they say, I have to get it exactly right. I have to do everything I can. They become highly studious. They spend so much time reviewing it and going over it and they wind up producing something amazing. So there's no one direct formula, right? People respond to things different. We're all still individuals. Well, and you're also reliant upon people and you could produce the greatest thing you think you've ever produced and everyone else could say it was terrible. That's an interesting thing about narcissism as well. Is some of those individuals were willing to say, no, what I'm going to produce is amazing. And there's probably a lot of people in the world who don't have that. So don't produce something that actually would have been amazing yeah. because they don't have that ability to say, no, no, I'm good enough. And I'm going to go ahead and do this. Yeah. 
It's weird. It just, it makes me think about all of human existence <laughs> and the different types of personalities that have existed and the things that people have achieved. And there's this great, it's not a documentary, but it was like a recreation. And I think it was on History Channel. And it talked about the late 1800s with Vanderbilt and JP Morgan. And um, there were like five titans of railroad and oil. Yeah. And they basically controlled the world. Yeah. They had, uh, I forget who, which one it was. Um, I think it was Carnegie. Carnegie had, they want to say trillions of dollars. So much money in terms of assets and land and everything. It's unfathomable. There's only one other person in the history of the world that had more money. And it was this king uh, a long time ago. And I can't remember his name now. The African king? Uh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I do. I don't remember his name specifically. Yeah. Uh, but so Carnegie, or one of these five titans, I can't remember, um, had so much money and so much influence. And those five guys essentially ruled the entire world. Yeah. But if you had taken those personalities and maybe had a father who was nicer to them or a mother who didn't die in childbirth or yeah. give them social media or give them the ability to create tennis shoes. Like there's all these different factors that go into everything that's ever happened. And it only happens to who it happens to because of where they're at and what they can work with. Sure. It's a really, really tricky thing too, because one of the other things that I think about in that example that you're talking about. So to some degree, we connect success with um, challenges and overcoming hardships striving to some extent that uh, it makes us better. And it's a really tricky thing because to some degree, I personally feel that, that some of the challenges that I've had in my life have made me push harder than I otherwise would have been. They've made me more successful and they've made me better as a clinician. It's a really tricky thing. On the other hand, would I have wanted to take some of those challenges away personally from my own contentment? Probably, yeah. Would I be a different person? Probably, yeah. It's a really, really tricky thing. And so as we think about, and you were, I, I go back to this question that you had about raising children. How do you raise children in a way, you know? And so we're trying to, I think modern parenting is trying to provide children with the optimal situation to thrive, to be happy individuals who thrive in the world. Well, that isn't always congruent with a lot of our cultural values, which, you know, maybe JP Morgan embodies some of those in a different way cultural value of financial success and, and prosperity and wealth. It's a tricky thing because I'm raising my child in a way to where I want him to thrive. I want him to be successful. I want him to work hard and I want him to understand and appreciate the value of that. If I do the job that I'm hoping to do, he won't necessarily have some major crisis or challenge that he has to overcome. Will he be better off for that or not? I would imagine that personally, individually, he would feel that he was. That being said, let's go back to Michael Jordan. I don't know Michael Jordan personally. I've never met the man, certainly never worked with him psychologically. What I see from media representations is a profound insecurity there hmm. and this push to have to be the best at absolutely everything. Hmm. And to, to, to I, I, I think there was something about his um, Hall of Fame speech where he went back and he was saying something about that coach in high school that he had who cut him from the team. And I was thinking to myself, man, you have accomplished so much in the world that anybody ever can. Yeah. 
you are globally known and celebrated as one of the best athletes in the history of humankind. And you're still hung up on your high school coach who cut you? What? But also, if that guy wouldn't have cut him, maybe yeah. he wouldn't have became become who he became. It's hard to say. I, You know, I don't think that most of the time there's one event. Because it's also possible that this is just part of who he was. So that coach doesn't cut him, but then some girlfriend dumps him the next year and says he's a loser. And that becomes the catalyst for him or something else. There's a little bit of a butterfly effect here, right? Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily know what would have happened if, right? That being said, he does seem to hold on to different grudges and use them as fuel and motivation. So he may have sought that out in another venue. For all we know, that coach cut him in the best possible way. I wasn't there in that, in that room. <laughs> that guy might've sat him down and said, Michael, I think you could be good one day, but you know, you're just not there yet. I don't know how it took place. I don't yeah. know how it happened. I don't, I don't necessarily embrace the idea that, that one event magically changes, changes the trajectory of a person's life, usually. Of course, there's exceptions, but I think by and large, people are more solid than that, that it takes more than one little bump to shift our trajectory. Because if it did, I think I would be unemployed. My job w w wouldn't need to exist because people would, you know, learn some insight about themselves, change the trajectory, and they'd be off to the races and they'd be good. Mm -hmm. I think it takes a little bit more to, to, to really develop into something either great or pathological. Yeah, if people were solid, you wouldn't have to rob it. <laughs> yeah, if 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 people could look, there there was one old statistic that from the from the time that somebody identifies that there's some sort of a problem in their life until the time they come into therapy is about seven years. That's a long time. It's a long time. Anybody who comes into my office, they've tried family. They've tried self-help books. They've tried Dr. Google. They've tried everything to try and get better. They're coming to me usually as the last line of defense. If those other things worked, they wouldn't need to come to see me. Mm -hmm. If self-help books were the magical elixir, and self-help books can be very beneficial to a lot of people, but they're not the ma a magical elixir. Knowledge alone is not sufficient to be able to shift or change. It takes experience. It takes something relational as well. Yeah, well, yeah, it also takes relying on the uh, advice from someone you trust. And if you're a third party like yourself, then I guess it's easier to trust you than a grandma or something. Because you're unbiased or you're supposed to be. Nah, I'm biased. <laughs> but you're supposed to be. If I come to you no, and I I'm ask not. you for advice, you're, you're different than me asking my mom or asking my brother or something. Sure. Well, first, okay, I'm not going to give you advice. I don't give advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> that doesn't mean that sometimes my patients don't feel like I've given them advice because people hear things the way they're going to hear so, Okay, things. so how do you define it then? How do I define what? What you do if it's not giving advice. Well, um, is it guiding? Guidance is a huge part of it. Okay. So what we know about psychotherapy and how psychotherapy helps is it, it really isn't advice. Okay. And, and um, a therapist who, who comes in and, and just gives advice, people have already heard the advice. I, I don't possess any magical advice or wisdom that, uh, that my patients come in uh, don't already know on some level. I just don't. I, I don't have some sort of a um, ownership over the best way to live a life. I absolutely do not. In fact, I certainly don't know how an individual should live their life. 
And if people just needed advice, they would have gotten that from their grandma and they would have taken it because something would land with them eventually. A major factor that is important in um, therapy, there's a split, right? And this split has been talked about for a very long time, and I'll sort of categorize it as the epistemological versus the ontological. And the epistemological is what people think of therapy as being. It's knowing. It's, oh, you do that because, you know, you feel like your mother never really loved you or some other cliche. You do that because when you were young, you felt, you know, you grew up in poverty and so you have to compensate by, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a way of knowing things. And that's an important component of therapy that I can listen to an individual and I can listen on multiple different levels and I can help understand and make sense of what leads them to do what they're going to do. So I have training in that. I have some expertise in that. I can help to um, impart that knowledge on people. But that's not what changes people. It's not like somebody hears this aha intervention and they say, that's why I do this. And then they just stop doing it. It's just not the way therapy works. The ontological component, the sort of being component, the experiential component is much more important in many ways. So I have to know something. I have to understand something better to know myself better. But then I have to be able to work through and experience that in a different way. So it's one thing if I understand that I do this because... But that's not going to stop me from doing it. I'm still going to continue to do it. And what's great about therapy is therapy gives you an opportunity to do a couple of different things. One, to continue to see that show up in your life in different ways. There's a saying in therapy that the bus always comes back around. So if you miss something one time, it's going to come back. It's going to happen again. And we can almost guarantee that because we're sort of creatures of habit. So you know something, you understand something about your life. Okay. Now... With time in therapy, we begin to see, ah, it's showing up here, it's showing up there. I see all these different ways in which it's manifesting. That's great. But then I'm also doing it with somebody, in conjunction with somebody. I go back to this, this notion that humans are social, humans are relational. And it's within the context of relationships that we grow. And so there's this back and forth that happens that's on an emotional valence, it's on a cognitive and thinking basis. It's also on a somatic basis to some degree. We experience it as whole people. And it allows us to work through those things. Sometimes people use the word processing. I'm not a huge fan of the word processing. People use it a lot. It feels so mechanical and cognitive to me. And a lot of therapy to me is not cognitive. It's really an integration of cognition, affect, and soma, much more in conjunction with another human being. So two people experiencing something together allows people to grow in a way that I don't think they can grow on their own. But sometimes you just need to not be around another person, right? Sure, of I mean, course. maybe there's a toxic person in your life that maybe there's issues with you too, but yeah. you got to work through it without that other individual. How? Well, I mean, for example, say like your mom was abusive in your childhood sure. and she's still verbally abusive and she tries to control you and she makes you call her eight times a day, whatever. Like yeah. maybe you just need to say, hey, mom, sorry, I don't talk to you anymore or something. Absolutely. Yeah. There are definitely times when we need to cut people off, but that doesn't mean that we don't need other people in our life mm -hmm. to some extent. So that person may no longer offer us an opportunity or an ability to have a healthy relationship with them. It just may not be a possibility with that individual. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Excuse me. And sometimes that means we have to cut those people out of our lives. It's a regrettable thing. It's often a very tragic and difficult thing. Yes. 
I think what I'm talking about is less the idea that every single relationship has to be nurtured or fixed or tended to in some way. I'm talking more about the idea that um, when we do change, it's it's really not because, you know, we're sitting there. Sometimes you'll hear this notion of, you know, I can't be in a relationship until I work on myself. How does one do that exactly? <laughs> what does that mean that you start going to CrossFit and yeah. drinking more, you know, bubble tea? Yeah. I, I don't, I've never known what that means. It's a bizarre statement. And I hope that we've moved past that to the point to where n no, no whole complete Buddha-like enlightened person goes out into the world and says, now I'm ready for a relationship. Yeah. We all come into relationships with our baggage. Everybody has baggage, right? And we hope that to some degree we can find a way that those work to where we don't exacerbate one another's problems, but we can help contain them. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, I mean, that's the most dis difficult part of life is interacting with people. And for me, it is dealing with expectations and disappointment. And you can only wish and want for someone to do something so much. You, you're not in control of anyone. Yeah. You're only in control of yourself. A little. A little. And I, I said this to my friend the other day. I'm like, I don't, I don't rely on anyone. And that sounds kind of shitty. I have people that I can trust mm -hmm. in my life that if I went to jail or something, I could call them. Mm -hmm. But I do not rely on anyone because I'm the only one responsible for me. If I want something to happen, I have to make it happen. I can't rely on other people to help me get a new job or something. Like I have to make that happen. And that's the disconnect. And that's the, 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 time, or the, the situation where I get frustrated with people in my life because I expect something out of them and I can't expect anybody to do anything. They're gonna do it when they want to or never. I think it becomes problematic when people take that to an extreme. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think I hear what you're saying that that you have to make choices for yourself in your life that, that are in your best interest because you can't always say that other people are going to do that for you. Sometimes people take that to an extreme, the sort of, uh, you know, I'm a rock, I'm an island kind of an idea mm -hmm. that um, I don't need anybody and I'm going to shut everybody out. I think that's problematic and yeah. really doesn't make sense. Similarly, if I overly rely upon anyone and say, I can't do this, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I need you, you have to do this for me, that becomes problematic as well. Yes. So creating that sense of a boundary between self and other is really important. When I go back to the original thing that we were talking about with borderline and narcissism, that's one of the major things that plagues both of those individuals, that inability to really get a healthy demarcation between here's who I am, here's where I stop, here's the boundary of who I am as a person psychically and, and, and physically, and here's where the other person begins. It's a very, very difficult thing for both of those individuals. To find that line where they can say, this is who I am, I have these things about me that I like, that I think are great, that are really, really awesome. These are the things that oh, I don't feel so good about. I feel a little insecure about. I think that these are weaknesses. I need some help with that. And then to be able to lean into another person in a healthy way. To say, I think to, to, to your point, I don't, I don't have to have you here to do this for me, right? There are times in which, you know, 
I, 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 I think to myself, oh man, I, I, I love my son. I love being with my son 24 seven. He, he's everything to me. You know, and I use that kind of hyperbolic language that, that he is my entire world. And, and it, and it denotes a feeling, which is absolutely true. But then I also get to this point to where I realize, wait a second, who am I without him? I need to tend to that. I need to make sure that there's a person that exists outside of my role as a father that is also another person because I, I feel like, you know, you can get caught in that trap. And there's people that go the other direction as well. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to see them very often. I'll just kind of see them. They're their own people. They're going to do what they're going to do. Finding that balance, I think it's an incredibly hard thing to do. It is. And you just made me think of um, when I went through my divorce, uh, my identity was husband, father, yeah, homeowner, guy who mows the lawn, guy yep. who takes the garbage out. Yeah. I had this identity. Yes. And then when that identity was taken away from me, yes, that's what's so devastating about that situation is I didn't know who I was anymore. I was like, that's right. That was me. And now I don't get to be me. And now who are you? It's brutal. All of it got shifted, right? Your, your identity as a husband is completely removed. You're no longer a husband to somebody. Your identity as a father gets altered in a significant way. That's been changed, right? That's been shifted. Are you the guy that mows the lawn? Well, maybe, but you know, for the people that used to mow it for in, in conjunction as a family, no. So all of that changes, yeah. So that sense of how we tie our identity to other people can be really tricky. And it's, and, and it's different culturally as well, right? If you think of a collectivist culture, the identity is much more permeable in the sense that I am who others are around me. In collectivist cultures, though, they also tend to cultivate having a lot of people around and having values that you can stay anchored and connected to. In an individualistic culture like the U.S. is, it's promoted to be I am just me. I don't need these other people. So we sort of don't create those connections. So what that level of dependence or independence looks like is also culturally defined and sanctioned, but it's, but it's encouraged, cultivated, and reified through the society around us. So are these cluster B issues more prevalent in a Western culture like the United States? I don't know those numbers off the top of my head. What I can say is that I think that there would absolutely be cultures that would not understand or comprehend what those are. The most obvious example is there's a, um, there is a diagnosis. It's not cluster B, it's dependent personality disorder. That wouldn't exist in a culture like Japan. It just doesn't make sense because all the criteria for it would be healthy in Japan. All of the things that, 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 that define what dependent personality disorder is, is culturally defined. It's culturally biased. And because yeah, they have a significant issue with isolation, right? But also dependence. And dependence is healthy and it's nurtured and it's cultivated. So, yes, it's absolutely true that, um, that personality disorders are very much culturally specific to the extent that... Every, everything about the DSM, you know, we try and, and the DSM was created with this idea that we're going to be atheoretical. We are going to just be completely neutral, medically modeled. It is going to not necessarily be biased based upon one psychological theory versus another. This is just going to be objective fact. But you can't create that. It's, of course, theoretical in the sense that it is medically modeled and Western medicine is a particular type of theory, for better or for worse, has lots of great things about it, has some drawbacks as well. 
just like everything does. <laughs> no great, great mystery there. Um, but it's also created within the context of a society to where we're saying that X symptom is bad. We're saying that if you experience this thing, that's bad objectively. And not every culture agrees with what those standards are. Mm -hmm. So is that a problem in and of itself, classifying something as bad? Like no. who, who, yeah, who determines what's bad? Classifying something as bad is not necessarily problematic. There's a lot of debate within the field of psychiatry, psychology, and mental health about whether or not disorders and diagnoses should even exist. Some will say they shouldn't exist. Others will say absolutely they should exist. Some will say that they're akin to mental illness or, excuse me, illness or disease. Others will say, no, you can't compare it to illness or disease. That's a completely different model. And you get these camps that'll argue and fight with each other about what's right or what's wrong. At the end of the day, there's no really clear answer. What I can say with confidence is that these diagnoses are created within a cultural context. There is validity to the idea that some people function psychologically well and some people don't. I believe that. I believe that there is such a thing as psychopathology. Not everybody does. I don't necessarily think that diagnosis is, on the face of it, always important. And I think that we lean really heavily into it, but it's so individual. There are some people who, once they receive a diagnosis, feel so much comfort. Oh, this makes sense. Now that you've given me this diagnosis, that means that it's understood. And if it's understood, that means something can be done about it. It felt hopeless before, but now I feel like I know what I can do with this. Now I feel like this thing that was amorphous and scary and intimidating and overwhelming, somebody knows what to do about it. Because if you can name it, that means you must know how to treat it. And then other people will feel like that I don't want to be defined by that. Now it's too limiting. Now I'm just a person who is borderline or schizophrenic or bipolar. And that's all that I am. And I don't want to be that. Well, and those people probably don't really want to change, right? If they're afraid of a diagnosis, they're afraid of being okay. Not necessarily. One of the unfortunate things that's happened with some of these diagnoses is the idea that they're permanent. And that's not always true. Some people receive a diagnosis, and it's not uncommon for somebody to receive a diagnosis from a general practitioner, a primary care practitioner, and they'll say, you need to be on this medication, you'll be on it for the rest of your life. That's it. End of story. And that is powerlessness. That can lead a person to feel like, I just have this thing that I'll never be able to change in my life. I'm just limited by this. Not everybody will feel that way. Some people will feel different. But other people will, might feel like, I want to change. But apparently I can't because this doctor told me that I have bipolar. I'm going to have bipolar for the rest of my life. I have to take this medication for the rest of my life. And by the way, for some people, that's absolutely true. Categorically, is that true? Eh, it's more complicated. There are certain brain diseases, for lack of a better word, that you cannot change through therapy or anything. You're just, that's what it is. Are you saying that? I'm asking. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is um, that general consensus? There's just, your brain is this way. This is who you are. Figure it out. I go back to the biopsychosocial model. I go back to the idea that our psyche is not objective. It is objective and subjective. And it always has to be thought of as both. So we can study the brain. Some There's a... Um, a pretty well-known psychologist named Jonathan Shedler, and he's made a wonderful comparison. We talk about neurotransmitters in, 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 in um, a lot of psychiatry and neuroscience and the importance of neurotransmitters. They have a function, right? 
And the analogy that he used is he said, you know, when you, when you try and look at mental health, mental illness, psychopathology as just a function of neurotransmitters, it's extremely limiting. And he likens it to understanding the pixels on a television set will not give you any understanding of the plot of The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> yeah. So I can tell you all of the science and the mechanics behind a pixel on television and all of the different, you know, functions of it and, and et cetera, and I cannot tell you a single thing about The Empire Strikes Back based upon that knowledge. Yeah. Because there's two different things. The pixel helps to establish the, the technology that displays the image in the story, but the image in the story happens within it in a way that can't be defined based upon pixelization. Yeah. And it's similar with the science. So neuroscientists very frequently, not all of them, you'll, you'll notice I do a lot of this sort of like, not everything, right? And that's a trap that people fall into is this idea that, you know, everything is one way. And it's just so much more complicated than that. Well, also, I'm a very firm believer in we have no idea what we're doing. We are doing yeah. the best that we can with Absolutely. what we know. Absolutely. No offense, but everything that Absolutely. you think is true could yep. be completely false in 10 years. And that's the nature of learning and that's evolution and that's scientific thought. That's the whole process. And and the, the psychologist or any other professional that does not operate from that standpoint is in a very dangerous place. Because a hundred years ago, we thought things were this. Yes. And now we say, oh no, it's like this. A hundred years from now. So a, a particular model has dominated the field of um, psychiatry for the last 40 years. You can call it the chemical imbalance theory. Now, this is not, depression is not due to a chemical imbalance. Let's be very clear about that. We have discovered that with some people, some medications impact neurotransmitters, which can affect mood. That's what we can say. We have discovered that, and that's just true, that some psychotropic medications impacting neurotransmitters improve and affect mood for some people. That's a fact that we can't dispute right now. But that does not mean that we can say that because this particular medication, SSRI, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, because it impacts serotonin in the brain, that you're depressed because you don't have enough serotonin. That's like saying that because Advil fixes your headache. The fact that you have a headache is due to an absence of Advil in your system, right? Yeah. It just doesn't necessarily work that way. And so a lot of the psychopharmaceutical industry really pushed this narrative of it's a chemical imbalance. It's a chemical imbalance. That's all, of it. That's all it is. Because they want to sell drugs. And people within psychiatry have known for a very long time, that's overly simplistic. That's not exactly how it works. But that's been the predominant theory, and it's impacted the general public to a significant degree. I can't tell you how many patients I've had who have sat there and said to me something like, this last week was really hard. I've been depressed. It's just a chemical imbalance. And that's it. And that's the end of the conversation. That's the end of the thought for them. A hundred years from now, we're going to look back on that and say, you people were idiots. Mm -hmm. We know so much more now. Well, the truth is many people have known for a very long time, wait a second, that's not the way that any of this works. Mm -hmm. So to go back to your original idea, is there a genetic or hereditary component to some disorders? Yes. I think we can say very confidently that the current research that we have demonstrates that there is truth to that. Now, it's not as simple as, oh, Somebody has schizophrenia, that means that their child has a 42% chance of having schizophrenia. What seems more likely is that, so you have to remember, all of these diagnoses are constructs. 
There are ways of us trying to make sense of a certain pattern of behaviors, but that doesn't mean that they objectively exist in the same way that, say, a cancer cell does or a diabetes diagnosis does. These are much more subjective diagnoses than something from a medical model, a lot of things from a medical model. So we can say with some degree of certainty, to the best of our knowledge right now, that if somebody has a mental illness, there's a pretty good chance that, or, or there's some chance that somebody related to them may have that as well. But you also have to remember that every single gene, not every single gene, a lot of genes require activation, right? You can think of it as a light switch. Okay. So let's say that I have a... Um, Let's say that I have a parent with some sort of significant psychiatric illness, psychosis, right? I may have that genetic predisposition toward it, but I also know that there are social factors that are likely to increase my odds of turning that light switch and activating that gene. Poverty, we know that. Substance abuse, we know that. Trauma, we know that. Made um, significant substance abuse at a young age, usually around the age of onset of these disorders, so like late adolescence, early 20s. Those are things that can take that gene and flip that switch on. So now all of a sudden I have a psychotic break. But it's still the combination of different forces. Now, is that still permanent? We don't really know. Well, also hanging out with your mom who's schizophrenic is not good. No, <laughs> usually I mean, you're going to learn certain things from her just from her being crazy. Experientially, you'll learn them as well. Yes. And not only will you will you learn certain things, but you're growing up with somebody. Now, think of what a child needs in their environment, right? This goes back to what we were talking about as a parent. You need somebody who is going to be present, who is going to be stable and reliable, and is going to be attuned to your emotional and physical needs. And a person in a floridly psychotic state cannot be those things. They're not going to be able to be attentive to what you need. They're not going to be able to help be there to respond to those things. So it's not only that you're seeing these behaviors and that you're kind of understanding them, you're also being deprived of certain things and you're experiencing certain things with that individual. And that plays a major role. Hmm. Yeah, it's a bummer to me. I mean, I, I obviously don't have the answers, but it's a bummer to me to see I have friends who have difficult lives and difficult marriages and... Uh, they don't get exercise. They don't eat right. Yeah. Like, they're just, they're unhappy about everything. Yeah. And then they have other health problems and they go see a doctor and the doctor just gives them pills. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you're not, you have high blood pressure because you're overweight. Yeah. You can't just take a pill and you're going to be all right. Like there's other yeah. things going on. Yeah. And that is, it seems that that's what our culture is, is that we just, here's the pill. You, yeah. Oh, this is wrong with you. Here's the pill. There's money for Pfizer. We'll see That's you right. in a month. We don't like preventative medicine very well. We don't like this. I understand and appreciate that I'm entering somewhere controversial with this following statement. But one of the things that I think about with the pandemic and COVID outbreak is how we really missed an opportunity to talk more about health in a holistic way. Yeah, And so it became reduced to, do you have the vaccine or not? Are you wearing a mask or not? These things were worth discussing. These were important things to discuss. Let's talk about the vaccine. Let's talk about wearing a mask. Let's talk about washing your hands. These are really important things to discuss. 
But I noticed that we're also not talking about, are you getting enough sleep? How stressed are you in your life? Do you have physical activity? What kind of food are you eating? Because the kind of food that's promoted within the U.S. is really, really bad, damaging food. It's not very healthy for you. Dunkin' Donuts was given, or not Dunkin', uh, Krispy Kreme was giving away free donuts if you proved that you had a vaccine shot. We really missed an opportunity. And it's aligned, I think, with cultural values, as you point out. We missed an opportunity to be able to talk more in depth about, look, health is multifactorial. It's overdetermined. And it's influenced by a constellation of different things. It's influenced by genes, by you know, bacteria, by viruses. Absolutely it is. But it's also influenced by these other factors. And there are things that you can do. I think we like to be reductive as well. So we like to say things like, well, yes, all of that's true, but you can be very healthy and still get it. And then it's almost like people throw up their arms and say, well, I know a guy who did CrossFit every single day and he was keto, but he still got COVID and got super sick off of it and might even have long COVID. So who cares? Let's throw up our hands and not do any of that stuff. But we don't know that person's health history. Look, there are plenty of people out there in the world who have 5% body fat and go to the gym all the time and they can run a marathon. But for all we know, they have a hereditary disposition towards cardiovascular disease. And that's something that they need extra work to fight off, right? So we reduce it into something very understandable. You could say marketable as well. But we miss the opportunity to talk about these things as being much more nuanced, much more influenced by holistic and all sorts of other factors. And when I saw that happen with COVID, I just thought to myself, oh, this is such a tragedy. And this happens with mental illness as well, is we forget that there's a whole different constellation of factors that influence this. It is multi-determined. It is complex. Yes, there's a hereditary component to some things. But because there's a hereditary component to some things does not mean that one's pre destined toward it and that nothing else can happen with it. There's lots of different things that that can influence it. I am not a person who feels that um, psychopharmaceuticals are either all good or all bad. They're really beneficial for some people. Some people have literally been saved. Their lives have been saved by psychotropic medications. Do I also think that we overprescribe medications? Absolutely, yes. The last number that I heard, and this might be wrong, is that 75% of psychotropic medications are prescribed by a general practitioner, not a psychiatrist, not a psychiatric nurse practitioner, not somebody with serious mental health experience or knowledge. Combine that, by the way, with another statistic, which says that most new research in medicine doesn't cross a general practitioner's office for 17 years after it's produced. So then you're saying that the average general practitioner physician is about 15 years behind on research. Mm -hmm. And most of them are prescribing psychotropic medications. Mm -hmm. So you're running into this problem in which we're not really arming ourselves with as much knowledge as we need. But still, psychotropic medications can be beneficial for some people. Psychotherapy can be beneficial for some people. And we also know that for those people who take medication, they do better when they're also in therapy at the same time. And our research supports that. But that doesn't mean psychotherapy is for everyone. Nor do I believe that psychotherapy is the, you know, the ultimate one-all be-all for everything or everybody. Can it be a part of it? Yes. Is it all of it? I don't think so. I think it's still important to be able to share with someone, like I said earlier, that that's a third party that you can trust, that that you know they can't share with other people. 
Because, yes. I mean, you yes. must hear a crazy amount of secrets, stuff that's buried, maybe stuff you uncover, and you don't have to share it with me, obviously, but um, that is so important because I think a lot of people, and especially dudes, because there's this yeah. culture of like, you're not supposed to talk about it. You're supposed to suck yeah. it up and figure it out. If you have somebody that you can just let it out to, I mean, I don't know how that would not be a good thing. And I know yeah. so many people that are like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to a therapist. I'm not going to talk to anybody. That's not, it's not going to fix anything. I'm like, you don't know. You don't, if you've never eaten pizza before, you don't know if it's going to be your favorite food or not. Like go try it. Well, there's a combination, I think, of fear and stigma and lots of other factors working there. I think probably the most common thing I've ever heard in my office is the phrase, you know, I've never told anybody this, but it's such a humbling thing. I mean, it really keeps me in check. It is such a tremendous privilege and honor to be a person that somebody trusts enough to reveal something that they've never revealed to anybody else. It really can feel overwhelming at times. And I think for me personally, it leads me to really take seriously the endeavor of it and the importance of it and the amazement of it. But yeah, I'm a stranger. I don't know these people. These people bravely walk into my office. They have no idea who I am. They've never met me. They see my webpage, a little picture of me and 150 words about how I think about therapy that are pretty general and generic and vague, but they don't know me. And then they come into my office and they share the most intimate, vulnerable things in their life. It's amazing that it works. It really is astounding. Well, yeah, and you are inadvertently closer to your clients than you are to maybe like your best friend or yeah. your brother or whoever else, you know, because yeah. all those intimate things that yeah. is, that's pretty powerful. It's extremely sure. powerful. Yeah. It's extremely powerful. And it's a huge component of what makes the endeavor as powerful as it is. That we have set up conditions in this office, this little, you know, this 15 by 20 foot office that allow you to be able to come in and say whatever you want to say. And then what we're going to do with it, this is one comparison that I often use, is that as we become adults, we become so laden with judgments and, 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 and evaluations that we really just look at everything that we do and we look at the world around us with such heaviness. And the comparison that I like to make is a young kid who's, who's playing out in the yard and they turn over a big rock and they see all these bugs. And they don't go and get grossed out and like throw it down and get, you know, right inside the house. They're like, what is that? What is that one? This is new to me. I don't know what this is. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that excitement. And that's how I think of therapy, that we're going to turn over this rock together. I'm going to create a space for you where I let you know that whatever is under that rock, we're going to get through it together. We're going to be okay. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to kill you. I'm going to make sure that whatever's under that rock is not going to kill you. Let's turn over that rock and let's look at it and just be amazed by it and curious about it and try and understand it and learn more about it and know what it is. And then as we do, you begin to understand and see that, 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 that little roly poly, that's not scary. That beetle, that's not going to hurt me. That's not going to do anything. That, that earthworm, it's just doing its thing. It, 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 it's not going to bother anybody. And it's such an amazing thing that people, people can do that. But that's the idea that in this room, we create the conditions where we can turn over this rock and just be curious together and think together and play together. I use the analogy of play a lot because it's such an important thing that we abandon as adults so frequently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the coolest part about hanging out with kids and interacting with them is they're typically, I mean, they'll be scared of stuff, but they're kind of yeah. up for most things. Yeah. And going back to when I was talking about disappointment and expectations and everything, I, 
I know so many people that are unhappy and it's easier to just keep doing it because the, the fear is. of change is more uh, over overpowering than just living in the mud. Well, and, and I think living in the mud has worked for them as well. From our outside perspective, there's lots of problems with it. It doesn't work. It doesn't function. It, it makes them unhappy. But that's not necessarily true from their experience. I think a lot of things that are pathological in how we engage with the world, how we interact, there's there are people, myself included, who look at a lot of these things as, as adaptations. So I grew up in this environment, or I have this particular, you know, hereditary makeup, or or I had these types of, you know, parents and teachers and, and coaches around me. And some of it didn't work so well. And so because of that, I had to develop this tendency to do blank, right? To overcompensate, to be more insecure, to be more aggressive, whatever it is. This behavior. I had to develop that. And that allowed me to survive and thrive in a situation, maybe not thrive, but survive and thrive in a situation that otherwise wasn't very good. And so my doing this thing was an adaptation to the environment. I started doing this thing because hmm, things weren't so good around me. Now, as I've grown up, that thing is no longer needed because I'm not in the same situation in life. So I no longer have to do that thing. I don't have to compensate in that way. I don't have to behave in that way. I don't have to relate to people in that way. But that doesn't mean I can let go of it. It's all I've ever known. And what we know is preferable to what we don't know. Because at least we know we can survive what we've been through. We don't know if we'll survive the other thing. It's a huge unknown and we're terrified of that. So we cling to this behavior because it's worked for us for a very long time. And sometimes we'll even believe, well, other people have the problem. That's their problem. This works for me. I'm doing fine. I'm okay. It's really hard to let go of these things because for so long in our life, they were not only useful, but a lot of times they were necessary. And to just let go of that and become a whole new person, especially when... If you go into a therapist's office at the age of 25 or 40, you've had that many years to develop this pattern of being. You don't change those things overnight. It takes time. And letting go of them can be terribly frightening because of that idea that, well, well, this has worked for me. Even if from an outside objective perspective, we would say, is it really working? Well, yeah, it was at the time. It allowed them to psychically remain intact in a situation that was otherwise very difficult and overwhelming. Yeah, I guess it's just being a human. <laughs> it really is. And that 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 is messy. Yeah. It's messy, it's complicated, it's difficult. Yeah, it is. And I, like I said before, like I just I feel like I like to think that I get smarter each year. <laughs> but I mean, there I mean there's core aspects of me and I'm not like I'm not trying to say I don't have issues, I don't have problems, I don't have things I'm not working through, but um I think you're right. I think it's easier to see something when you're not the person who's living it. It's yeah. easier to be like, what are you doing, man? Yeah. Well, and their stuff bumps up against our stuff. And so they have their stuff, we have our stuff, and then they collide. Maybe they connect with each other. Maybe they sort of contain one another and they're healthy and they're good and it's generative and fruitful, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's destructive and bad. And sometimes it really is just predominantly their stuff, but most of the time it's a combination. Mm -hmm. And so in your experience, the majority of these things, I mean, it's, it's kind of your parents. It's your upbringing and it's your parents. 
it's tricky. Here's the hard part about that. It's not uncommon for parents to feel very, um, very much blamed. And there are certainly models of psychotherapy which will just do that in a very casual way. I think one of the most important, so there's um, a really famous psychoanalyst, Tom Ogden, who writes about some of the most fundamental things he believes in, in the practice of psychotherapy. And the first one is being humane. And when he talks about being humane, he extends that to not only the patient in front of him, but all of the people, all of the characters in that patient's world, right? So a patient comes into my office and they introduce me to all of the characters in their world. I'll never meet these people. I'll never actually know them in subjective reality. I know their subjective interpretation of them, right? So comparison I, I make is, if my father were to walk into this room right now, that's two different men. You're going to see him in a particular way, and I'm going to see him in a particular way. Okay. Because mine is loaded with a history of 46 years of knowing this man. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. Yeah. You're going to be introduced to him. You're going to see him. You're going to get to know him. Certain things will be similar to both of us, but certain things won't be being humane and, and, and how this is relevant is it means that the people who raise us, which for most people are their parents. And for most of those people, it's their mother. That's just the way the system works right now, for whatever reason, we can discuss the, the good parts and bad parts about that. But the simple fact of the matter is most people's primary caregiver in their life is their mother. The people that raise them are humans. And those humans are messy and complicated as well. And when two humans interact with one another, it's even that much more messy and complicated. No parent has to be perfect. There's no such thing. Winnicott, a famous um, psychiatrist who, who mainly treated children, introduced a lot of really important concepts that a lot of people know. He defined that the, the best parent is good enough. And that's all you really have to be. But even if you're good enough, you're imperfect and certain parts of who you are as a parent are not always going to line up with who you are as a kid. You'll, uh, there's an experience that happens very often in therapy. A patient will come in, they'll talk about some memory that they had, some situation with a parent. And, oh, it was so hard. They said this or they did that. And it was so hard. I finally confronted my mother and my father about it. I told them and they didn't remember. I can't believe they didn't remember. And they didn't. And that's probably true of your children, the same way it's true of my child. Mm -hmm. That there are experiences that are so pivotal and powerful to them, but we don't even remember it because we're human. Now look, there are plenty of really highly disturbed people out there who raise children and they do them great harm. And they're very disturbed people. But even more common than that are just fairly decent people who, because they're imperfect like all humans are, impact a child sometimes in negative ways. Hmm. So I think in this whole idea of parent blaming, it's important to remember, it's not so much parent blaming as much as it is understanding that in the context of development, two or more psyches are colliding with one another in all of their complications and all of their difficulties and all of the different stuff that they bring to it. And they're not always going to work well, even if people are well-intentioned. And that can have a lasting impact on kids, depending upon how they experience it. It doesn't necessarily mean that was a bad parent. It doesn't necessarily even mean that they did a bad thing that day. You have to remember, there is a nature nurture. People have different types of personalities, right? So one comparison that I make is, there's commonly talked about two valences of parenting, two common valences. One of them is demandingness. 
how much of a demanding parent are you? How high do you place expectations? Work hard, do this, do that. Here's your chores, here's your homework, study more, be a more artistic, play the piano, go play soccer. How, you know, oh, do whatever you want, who cares? Go watch TV if you want to, I'm not involved. So there's a continuum of demandingness. Then there's a continuum of support. How supportive and warm are you? You got this, you, 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 oh, look at how amazing you are. You did this, this is such a cool thing versus eh, whatever, keep going. And the idea is that you have this sort of like, you know, like levels on a mixer. Mm -hmm. You can sort of, you know, adjust them to different levels on the continuum. So let's say that you have somebody who's very, very demanding and not very supportive. We call it an authoritarian parent, right? That's very stereotypical kind of a 50s, 60s boomer kind of a parent. They were, you know, very demanding. Go work hard. I'm not going to show you a lot of support. I'm not going to give you a lot of hugs. I'm not going to say I love you. Let's say that that parent raises a kid who is defiant, strong-willed, stubborn, and oppositional. That person's going to be rebellious. That might be a teenager who experiments with a lot of drugs, has a lot of sexual partners, does a lot of dangerous activities because they need to rebel against that demand to be perfect, right? Now let's say you have another kid raised by the exact same parent who has a temperament that is much more anxious and fearful. They're going to be overwhelmed by that. Mm -hmm. They're going to become fastidious, maybe obsessive and compulsive, exacting, perfectionistic, raised by the same parent. So it's important to remember that in any parenting, it's a dyad and often a triad. But at the very minimum, there's a dyad there. And each person is their own. And how a parent raises a person is going to differ based upon what that person's personality is like. So it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. And... You just get what you get. And you get what you get. Yeah. There's so many factors. There are. And when you further compound that, I often tell um, <clears throat> patients, I'll remind patients, like they'll say, my sister doesn't remember, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or my, my brother. Well, yeah, you had different parents. No, no, no. We had the same mom and dad. No, you didn't. <laughs> Were you the same with your firstborn versus your lastborn? Yeah. At no. the core, yeah, you're the same person. You're Cody, you're the same guy. But the way that you behave and interact with them is different. Yeah. For you're sure. older, you have more experience versus less experience. In some ways everything's different. With your first child, they have no siblings with them for a while. With your last with your last child, they always have at least one sibling, yours too. Yeah. So there are these slight variations which alter who we are to just enough of a degree. And then when you combine that with the individual unique personality and temperament of the child and then their upbringing and circumstances, it, it, it is a very complicated maelstrom of a lot of different factors. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, we we got to shut it down. This is a good spot. Um, I feel like I could talk to you for another six hours. That was really good. I would good. love to. That was really good. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. I, it, it's really, really fun to talk about these things. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it.